And thanks to Cry Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, confidant, co-conspirator and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, good to chat. Good morning, Matt, and good morning, listeners. <laughs> for, for everyone out there, I've plugged in my, my new podcaster, my road podcaster. They, they're not sponsors of the program or anything. It just happens to be the, the, the microphone that I have, and it's now out of its box and plugged in and working. The, the new microphone, because, uh, yes. Uh, I believe my tones are, are up to 20% more dulcet. <laughs> they, uh, your dulcetivity has uh, gone through the roof, Pete. So you are you are sounding fantastic. So Mikey Z, thank you for uh, shaming him into uh, Twitter handle Mikey Z. Thank you for uh, shaming him into put it plugging the microphone in. He has had that since before Christmas. It was his uh, Christmas present from uh, from me. It was, and it is now, and it's all well. I didn't want to plug it into the because I'm in the process of changing over to uh, upgrading my laptop because I thought maybe that was uh, part of the the quality control issue as well. So I didn't want to. Okay. I didn't want to go rush in and then have to undo it and say no, no, I don't recognise this computer now. Okay, so there we go. That's okay. Well, you, you you sound superb. So there you go, Prof. Thank you for for doing that. And uh, mate, we, we've uh, recently uh, launched a you know uh, published a podcast. Um, we're coming you know back already this week, and uh, we've got some exciting news that we have a a. a Note of professionalism, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> creeping into with uh, our, our producer we're, Lockie McIntosh um, coming on board to help us. Uh, he put his hand up and said, "We put a man on." Well, welcome, <laughs> welcome, Lockie. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, you know, Lockie is a, a professional producer, so uh, he will hopefully be lifting the quality of the program and making sure that it's uh, much more re- relevant. And he's already uh, sort of, you know given me a few tips on how we can improve this. And one of those is moving things along. So rather than us just uh, banter about nothing, Prof, uh, mate, what, what's been happening in Brisbane, uh, where I'm recording from, we are on the cusp of uh, Bruce Vegas. Bruce um, Vegas too, yeah. Bruce Vegas too. Brisbane's uh, you know annual celebration, week-long celebration of beer. Um, that kicks off uh, tomorrow night with the launch, tomorrow being Saturday. We're recording this on Friday the 20th. Um, and yeah, very exciting program. Well over forty-five venues involved, uh, over a hundred events. A um, v- lot of chatter, a lot of media, um, yeah, a lot of excitement about it. It'll be really interesting from my perspective. Um, you know, gee, look, five years ago, Brisbane didn't have a beer bar, or Brisbane had one beer bar um, that was the Grand Central Hotel. It was about five years ago that Archive launched, um, and we've seen a real flush of event of, of venues um so it'll be really interesting to see with so many events and so many venues getting involved so quickly whether there is the popular support and you know we, we see a lot of sellouts or we see a lot of uh, you know crickets chirping the events so uh, I'm, I'm fascinating i'm not running any events myself but i'm going to be going along and checking quite a few out just to see how it's all going no, this will be great, and, and, and in all honesty, without wanting to sound in any way patronising, but I, I really do wish um, all of the Bridge Vegas, like the organisers and everything, uh, all the best because, as I uh, just the last few years, and I've been up to Brisbane more frequently in the last few years than I ever had before, you can you can just sense a bit of a, a I think, a quantum shift in, um, and it's a bit, you know, there's a little bit of chicken and egg, like are there... The, the punters are wanting more and, and they're and they're getting more and then the venues are giving more and then and they're breeding more venues and uh, the, the bubble seems to have a fair bit more expansion in it. 
Yeah, look, there, there is. And look, it's very hard for me to sort of talk about my backyard um, because you don't want to be talking it down. But then again, I sort of do worry a little bit about hype. Um, but, you know, last night I went to a, um, it was a tale of two cities almost. I went to a beer dinner at a restaurant um, called Aquila. They've never, they, they've always had a little bit of beer on in the bar, but they've never, they've just in um, bottles, they've never had taps. But the owner has uh, sort of built himself a little you know, tap system. It's, it's quite a clever little thing that he's built himself. He had a dinner for Newstead last night. Um, the, the Newstead beers are tasting very good, one of our uh, recent uh, brewing additions. The food was superb, nicely matched. It was a really impressive, very low-key, you know, unhyped, um, event that just showed that you know hospitality venues that are uh, are putting on craft beer as part of their hospitality offering can do it really really well. So I'm really interested to see how they go. But on my way in, I, I called in at um, a bar called the Embassy that yep, about yep. two years ago or 18 months ago launched um, as a you know inverted commas craft beer offering. You know, 16 taps, all craft beer, um, and it was really interesting to see. Um, it's part of a bigger chain that has a line Nathan tie, but they'd sort of done some deals and, you know, I only had to have a, you know, a couple of line Nathan beers on in the embassy bar and some of the other, you know, taps were taken to some of their other venues. Walked in last night and, uh, you know, eight of the 16 taps are now back to uh, line beers. Um, you know, it's across, you know, Little Creatures, you know, uh, Rogers, so definitely not bad beers, White Rabbit. Um, but then you also suddenly see Han Super Dry and Forex Gold on tap again. Um, and, uh, you know, just of chatting to the guy behind the bar, um, they had Young Henry's Stupid Sexy Flanders, which was a sour beer that I remember there was a big launch party for it a couple of weeks ago, still on tap. Um, you know, so it's been on tap for at least three weeks now. Um, and you're sort of thinking, well, that's not a high turnover rate for a, for a you know, if you've got one tap that's tied up for three or four weeks and then there was a big beer from Bacchus it was over 10 percent and the guy was sort of shaking his head when I asked him how long it's been on and so you sort of think well look yeah you can jump on board with the craft beer but just because you put craft beer on doesn't mean you're going to suddenly you know fill your bar with um, people that are demanding 10 percent beers or you know sour beers and no you know it, also, if, if you're an inner city venue that has traditionally been a bit of a worker's pub, you can't suddenly drop Han Super Dry and Forex Gold in a town where they are big sellers. So, yeah, it was really fascinating to see, you know, a hospitality venue getting into craft beer, but then a venue that launched with much fanfare as being a, you know, dedicated craft beer venue suddenly putting, uh, you know, beers that are very traditional um, mainstream beers on. So, yeah, and... How that augurs for Bruce Vegas, I'm not sure. But, yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of hype about craft beer in Brisbane at the moment. We'll, we'll, we'll see, how, uh, see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, and maybe there's a little bit of ebb and flow still to come, as you've just described, but um, there's still some craft there. So, you know, softy, softy, catchy monkey. Absolutely. And, look, I'm one of these guys that, you know, I think revolution is really overstating it. I think we're seeing a shift in beer-drinking tastes. We're seeing a real... Faddishness at one sharpy, sharp pointy end of the market, um, where you know th there's dozens of styles being thrown up. That in five years, people will, you know will probably be a memory, um, and it's it, it's what sticks to the wall, you know, or, or what's left at the high tide mark when the, the wave washes out again. Um, that will really define whether we've had a revolution or we've just sort of you know ha had a bit of a beer, um, you know, 
fad. But yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's really exciting times. Um, and uh, you know, Bruce Vegas, the guys behind Bruce Vegas are fantastic. They're passionate. They're doing some really good stuff. Have you seen the video? Uh, I've shared it on the uh, on the, on the Facebook page, Prof, and uh, it, it posted on the site yesterday. It's a little bit like. Um, you know, the, the viral video that is an important part of Craft Beer Weeks at the moment, it was just a celebration of Bruce Vegas. Nice little jingle attached. Yeah, I did. Yeah, had a look at that. It was very entertaining. So, and yeah, well so good, uh, Yeah, well made. And it gives, a, I think, a nice feel. Um, you know, Brisbane is still a, a different market uh, compared to, uh, in the same way that all the other uh, capitals are, are very different. They're at, they're at different stages and they embrace craft differently. Uh, no less enthusiastically or passionately, um, and so I think the video fit fit really well. Yeah, yeah, but the, the, actually, it's funny you, you mention that because there is a in, in Brisbane there is a little bit of um, we had it so bad for so long that people are almost reveling in the in in the freedom. Whereas somewhere like Melbourne, it's been a long, slow burn to get there, um, and you don't quite have that same, um, you know. Exuberance, hype. I'm not. I'm not sure what it is, but there's a, certainly a lot of exuberance about the, um, you know, and excitement around the, the, the growth of craft beer. That you, you never know whether it's, you know, overhyped or you know, just uh, genuinely supported. So anyway, we'll yeah. look. We'll, we'll 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 wait and see. It's very exciting times, and uh, you know, taking nothing away from the guys who have really made a uh, spectacular uh, beer festival. It's got a lot of popular support. Um, now moving on, we uh, we have one guest uh, on the show today. Um, Stephen Beaumont, who, as I admit to him, may not be a household name uh, for you know, beer drinkers in, in Australia. He's a beer writer from Canada, as our Prime Minister likes to refer to it. Um, he's been writing since the, uh, the, the 1990s, so he certainly has uh, you know, a long track record. Um, and I, I highly commend his World of Beer um, uh, blog to everybody because he's got a... He's got an experienced eye, um, having just talked about hype and you know, exuberance and those sorts of things. He loves beer. He's very knowledgeable, but he's been around to see it all before. So he, he always has a fascinating take on on the beer scene. So um, we thought we'd uh, uh, have a chat to him, um, and we'd, it'd be great to get uh, Stephen down at some stage to either judge in the uh, AIBAs or come along to to some of the, um, the, the the festivals because it'd be really good to get his take on the Australian beer scene. Yeah, and you're do you right. read? Presents very well, like the way he his use of of the language and um, and uh, yeah, like you say, his the way his eye sees things. It's um, very refreshing. Yeah, and he, look, his as we talk about in it, he's got a, a beer, the beer bistro cookbook. He was a co-owner of a, of a beer bistro. Um, I think that's going back six or seven years. Um, yep. But he, uh, it's a fantastic book that you can still find um, in various places, and I highly recommend anyone that's interested in beer and food. Um, because you know it's just a really solid um, cookbook of recipes that have been proven in uh, his bistro, so uh, uh, well worth uh, chasing uh, chasing down. So uh, look, we, we go through a lot of this in the interview with him, so we might just get straight in and uh, chat to Stephen Beaumont. And yes, Stephen Beaumont, welcome to Radio Brews News. It is great to be here, well, virtually. Virtually, yes. Well, th- th- there is a great big world between us, but it's a, a great big world of beer, uh, fortunately. So I-, I guess for Australians who perhaps uh, you- you're not a household beer name down here, but you-, you 
it wouldn't be unfair to describe you as an old man of beer journalism these days, considering that craft beer is... You, you've been writing about craft beer since anyone ever called it that thing. Well, actually, it, it, it goes back to uh, micro, micro beer, microbrewery beer. Uh, but I've been at this about 25 years now. And uh, you've, you've got a long list of credits. Um, your, your blog, obviously, Beaumont Drinks, um, a wonderful name. But you've also, uh, I mean, without putting words in your mouth, you've uh, stepped into Michael Jackson's shoes and you've been uh, working uh, and, and re-editing some of his uh, old publications and, and keeping them alive. Well, it's, it's very kind to, to imply that I stepped into Michael's shoes. Uh, Michael was a good friend um, and... Uh, Tim Webb, well, we're, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but obviously the publications you're referring to are the World Atlas of Beer and the Pocket Beer Guide, both of which I co-author with Tim Webb. Um, and the first one of those that came about was the World Atlas, which actually didn't stem from Michael's book so much as from Hugh Johnson and Jancis Robinson's World Atlas of Wine. And they followed the, the publisher followed that up with the World Atlas of Whiskey by Dave Broom and then approached Tim to write the World Atlas of Beer, and Tim in turn approached me, and uh, we realized just the kind of legacy that we were dealing with, so we tiptoed very carefully, but uh, it was a fascinating journey developing that book, and it's something that we're both very proud of. I think Michael would have been proud of it too. Can I ask, had, were you a journalist first who, you know, 25 years ago there weren't many specialty beer writers, and it was often, certainly in Australia, it was often the sports writer who was told by the editor, well, you write about sports, you must know about beer, do you want to do a beer column? Is that the path you followed, or were you a passionate uh, drinks writer first and just managed to convince enough people early on that it was worth writing about? Well, actually, I, um, I graduated from university in political science, and uh, the way I explain things is that in political science, when you're studying it, you do three things. You talk a lot, you write a lot, and you drink a lot. That kind of led me into the, this career. I, I, I've always loved writing. I didn't go to J school. I have no journalism background to speak of, but I, I knew that I wanted to write. And um, in the late 80s, early 90s, it seemed like a really good idea to specialize if you were going to be writing about anything, uh, especially without a J school diploma, because it was a very tight time for writers, not as tight as it is now, I might add, but uh, uh, you know, without having J school, I wasn't going to get on any staff job, so I had to freelance and, and I chose to specialize in beer. One of the things I've always enjoyed about reading uh, your stuff is that you are part of the North American beer community, but being a Canadian, um, you have also had a, a, a sort of healthy dose of, I don't know, is it scepticism or just distance from your United States uh, cousins um, when it comes to looking at the, the US beer industry, which is dominates the, the globe at the moment? Yes, um, I, I think it's the distance that's the important part. Um, I, you know, my friends who write about beer in the, in, in the United States are, are aware that Americans get rather insular and navel-gazing when it comes to their beer scenes. But even being aware of that, they're kind of unable to break out of it. So being outside of the country allows me a little more perspective. Uh, and, and then coupled that with the fact that I'm constantly traveling around the globe 
um, to find out what's going on in other places. And uh, then writing an American publication to uh, remind my American neighbors about the fact that there are things happening in places other than the United States these days. Although the, the American uh, brewing scene is incredibly influential. I know that a lot of the brewers down, uh, down under in, in Australia where we're recording from look to, to the North American uh, brewers for inspiration. Um, they look to the North American scene to give them encouragement about the longevity of this uh, craft beer explosion. The United States can claim to be uh, the, the most dominant force in, in world brewing. Uh, would, would you agree? Yes, um, but at the same time, it, it is not as important as it thinks it is. You know, the, the, the thing about Americans is that uh, when Michael Jackson was, was still alive, uh, I forget the exact date when it was, but this would have been back probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, he said that the most important place in the world for beer today was the United States. And at the time, he was absolutely correct. And he took enormous flack from his uh, colleagues in the United Kingdom when he said that, but he was spot on. Um, now, you know, the Americans still think that that rings true, and I don't believe it does, just because there is such a diverse world of beer out there now. Um, there are, you know, I just got back from Italy a couple of weeks ago, and the Italian beer scene is flourishing. Um, what's happening in, in the UK today is, is absolutely unprecedented. Um, in the United Kingdom. It is, is astonishing to see what's going on there. Um, the Dutch, the Dutch are rewriting their own beer history. Uh, the Belgians, it goes on and on. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that the most exciting place for beer today can be around the corner from almost anywhere you are in the world. Stephen, do you think, is there, just touching on that theme, is, is there a common trend amongst the, um, I guess, the uptake of artisan or, or craft brewing in the various different countries that you mentioned? Is, is, there, is there a central theme? Like, is everyone kind of suddenly moving away from macro, mainstream, industrial, and then and embracing, I guess, you know, local and small and um, family-owned and that sort of thing? Or, or is it just, a, does each have their own different reason for being? The whole eat local movement has really been a boon to craft brewing around the world. And that is true everywhere. I mean, in, in France, in Italy, in uh, you know, other parts of Europe that are very Spain, very food oriented, that's always been the way. So it's not anything new, but it's almost like being reminded of it is enough to make them say, hey, you know, maybe we can do something with our own beer now. In addition to being at the, the height of craft beer for the last half century, we're also at the height of big brewery influence and domination in the marketplace. Um, I was looking over Michael's old books the other day, and in 1977, when he published The World Guide to Beer, the largest brewing company in the world was Anheuser-Busch with somewhere around 40 million hectoliters. Anheuser-Busch InBev today brews over 10 times that amount. So it's, it's, it's a stunning difference. And did I read uh, this week that um, the total volume of craft beer has now equaled Budweiser? 
Uh, Budweiser, the brand itself, yes, not the family of brands. So we've still got a long way to go, but we've come a long way. Yeah, I mean, the, the important thing to remember is that this is this is sprung from next to nothing, and and everywhere. I mean, it, it's not just it was next to nothing in the United States and now it's big. It, this is the same next to nothingness to being a hugely influential marketplace has happened all around the world in, in any number of different marketplaces. I, I recently read Pete Brown commented about there was a uh, Belgian beer competition and uh, some of the Belgian uh, brewers were surprised that they weren't featuring highly when you've got an international judging panel um, judging. And do, do you start to see a blurring of the lines between what the international uh, judges expect based on their world travels and what has traditionally been wonderful Belgian uh, beer? Are we going to see um, you know, some wonderful beers lost in, in, in Belgium as this global trend moves forward? The, the same thing is happening in Belgium that's happening everywhere. Um, there are breweries opening up, uh, what the Belgians call beer firms, which we, we would call contract brewers, uh, are multiplying exponentially in Belgium. So it is, to a certain degree, diluting the pool. And the other aspect of that is that there are certain breweries, and I'm not going to go and, and identify brewing companies that I, I think fit this bill, but there are breweries in Belgium that were always considered good because of the lack of context of their beers. These were beers that you could pick up and you could drink and say, wow, this is dramatically different. And therefore, I think it's good. However, now you pick it up and it's not dramatically different. And you kind of go, well, you know, if this is, this is a double, but there's so many better doubles on the marketplace. Some are brewed in Belgium, some are brewed in Netherlands, some are brewed in the United States, some are brewed in Canada. So that contextual element has kind of uh, done the whole the emperor's got no clothes on thing to a number of breweries that haven't changed. They've always been like that. It's just that we're looking at them with, with new wide open eyes. Which, which of the breweries in, in your patch that you uh, highly recommend and that, you know, if we haven't, if they haven't crossed the water to Australia yet, we should certainly be looking out for? Well, the, the Canadian market is, you, you know, you're probably familiar with Canada being a rather large country with not a huge number of people. And that, that in Canada has kind of divided up the market away in a bit that the Western Canadian market has developed in a different way than Ontario, which is a different way than Quebec, which is a different way than the East. So um, the breweries that are really making themselves known around the world now are the Quebecois breweries. Uh, led by Unibrew, but now, you know, the second wave, they're even, even more difficult to pronounce. Um, we've got uh, Judiciel um, out of Montreal. We've got Trou de Diable, uh, which is out of Shawinigan. Um, they've got uh, La Microbrasserie Charlevoix, also doing some astounding stuff. And these are, are breweries uh, that are really kind of starting to export their stuff down to the United States in small quantities. It's turning up in Asia in small quantities. And uh, I think they're going to be the first calling card to the world of Canadian craft beer. Uh, Judas Ciel is uh, certainly one that's uh, reached down here. Um, perhaps some of the other ones have, but uh, I don't recognize your pronunciation of them. <laughs> there actually is yeah, very few and, and fewer than there were even a few years back. I know Unibrew for a while anyway, um, rather than build a bigger brewery, 
decided to concentrate what they could brew on their, their local markets and not distribute um, in particular to Australia. Um, is there, just to clarify, Stephen, for those who, who perhaps don't know, is there a, a, a tax or an excise um, hindrance to Canadian beers, particularly um, craft beers, getting out of, uh, out of the country and, and down as far as Australia? Uh, not, the, not that I know of. Um, I think the reticence is more the fact that, uh, you know, these guys are, are basically brewing all they can and opening up new markets when you're, you know, hardly able to supply your domestic market is, is never a really good strategy. Um, but they, you know, they, I know that True to Diablo uh, just spoke to their brewer uh, a couple of weeks ago and he said they're doing their third expansion within like a year and a half. Uh, so they're growing at, at a remarkable pace, and I expect to see more of their beers turning up around the world. Maybe you could just describe the uh, the, the beer landscape uh, in, in Canada, because we, we do get a lot of stories about the beer store and the, the unique retailing arrangements that, that you guys uh, have in parts of Canada. Um, but in, in Australia, we have a very um, prohibitive excise regime where the, the stronger the beer, the more excise or tax you pay to the government, um, which really uh, favours much lighter um, alcohol beers than, than heavier ones because it becomes ridiculously expensive. Just, just describe what the, what the market's like, um, you know, both the, the government regulatory market, the, the retail market um, for, for beers in Canada. Well, e even though it's, it's expressly prohibited, there are still a lot of interprovincial trade barriers that exist. So it can be very difficult if you're, um, say, a brewer down in Nova Scotia in the east, it can be very difficult to get your beer into Ontario. Um, in fact, it can be sometimes easier if you're a German brewer to get your beer into Ontario than it is if you're a Canadian brewer. Um, so we have, you, you said, you mentioned the unique system in, in my province in Ontario. Unique is one way of putting it. Stupid is another. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we are sitting in, a, in a, a serious expression of the nanny state in Ontario. And uh, it's even worse than the nanny state to the degree that the main distribution channel for uh, beer in Ontario is called the Beer Store. And it's actually owned by Molson and Labatt, our two major breweries, uh, neither of which are wholly owned by Canadians. So it, it really becomes a rather bizarre uh, situation. Um, there's increasing amounts of public pressure on the government to change that, and uh, the, gov the government in Ontario has, has promised that they will um, issue a statement in the spring saying what they're planning to do. So we're, we've got our fingers crossed on that angle. And, and that's all a legacy of prohibition, you know, because the, the United States prohibition is the, the thing that everyone knows. But uh, Canada had its own form of prohibition that the, the, the retailing arrangements grew out of, is that correct? That is correct. We had, uh, we had prohibition not for as long as the Americans and not as seriously as the Americans. Um, but we did have it, and the beer store was originally established as a, uh, a brewer's cooperative. And that's where, that's where it came from. Uh, and the idea was to prevent brewers from directly owning their means of distribution. So they had to operate together. The irony, of course, is that it resulted in two breweries directly owning their means of distribution and that of all their competitors. It really has then taken a long time for the government to act on that because 
just the, the laws of logic um, and, and business would seem to argue against that, but there, there seems to have been a, a, a serious inertia um, in, in changing that. Well, you can't expect logic to prevail in government, can you? <laughs> no. no. I live in that's, hope. Yeah, that's not even a continental North American thing. That's, that's no, that's, that's pretty global. Yeah. So, so do you have a beer in front of you at the moment, Stephen? Actually, I have an empty glass in front of me right now because I'm sitting here talking to you. <laughs> I rearranged my uh, my office uh, some time ago, and actually I used to have the beer fridge and the wine fridge within easy reach of my desk, and now I moved both into a different room. So it, it means actually getting up and leaving if I was going to go do that. that w well, we can always edit it out if you did want to get up and uh, refresh <laughs> your glass. I can survive, I think. <laughs> but so you, you've got a wine fridge, so you're an ecumenical drinker. Uh, yes, I am. I, I'm nothing if not Catholic in my tastes. I have a, a very large liquor cabinet to my right as well. Um, so I, I, I've been writing about spirits for some time as well, almost about almost 20 years now, in addition to writing about beer. It's the, the lesser known side of my work. Um, uh, but I do not write about wine. I simply just enjoy it. Now, you've also had a, a number of cookbooks out because you... Uh, are a partner in a, a, a brasserie, like a beer-focused a beer -focused restaurant. Um, is that correct? Yeah, that that's a, was a partner. Uh, we sold the business uh, a couple of years back. It continues to do extremely well, but um, I frankly hadn't really been an active partner in it for some time. Um, I had kind of uh, moved back into my writing career. Uh, running a restaurant takes a whole lot of time, so you, know, you can appreciate what a, what a suck that was uh, of my writing time. Uh, but before I did move away completely, we, we published the Beer Bistro Cookbook, which was myself and the uh, executive chef and principal head of the company, uh, Brian Morin. And uh, unfortunately for that book, uh, about six months after we published it, the publisher went bankrupt. So uh, it, it didn't do so well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? That's a shame because I, I, it, it's one of my favourite of, of all of the cookbooks that uh, the, the beer-focused cookbooks that I've uh, purchased. It's uh, always been one of my favourite, and I'm not quite sure whether I, I buy most of my books on Amazon, so I'm, I'm not sure how I acquired it if the uh, publisher went, uh, went went broke. Is it still is it still available? Um, it wouldn't surprise me if it was. I mean, I, it seems like everything's available in some way or another on the this internet world. So. Uh, I'm sure it is. I inherited my copy, so I'm not sure where mine came from, but I'm just thinking the Matt and I might be sitting on something that's quite valuable now, if it's, you know, the first editions, perhaps, and never <laughs> to be repeated. I wouldn't, we'll have to I get you to sign uh, them when you come out. I wouldn't plan your retirement on that basis. Okay. <laughs> it is a very good book, though, Matt. You're right. If we do manage to flog a few units, I take it that none of that money is going to uh, end up in your pocket these days. Absolutely not, no. Sad, <laughs> sad to say. Uh, but I can tell you that I have a new book that's going to be coming out this fall, um, which is uh, focused on beer and food. And it's going to contain some recipes. It's not a cookbook by any stretch. But I do talk about some of the practical aspects of cooking with beer, uh, as well as the majority of the book is dealt, dealing with pairing beer and food. Uh, and the recipes are coming from all around the world. Um, we have Paul Mercurio is contributing a couple of recipes to the book. He's a wonderful friend of uh, Peter and I. Good friend of the program. So, mm -hmm. 
I was uh, I made his acquaintance uh, just about a year ago. Actually, he uh, out of the blue sent me his cooking with beer book uh, just because he said he had enjoyed mine and wanted me to enjoy his. So I thought that was very decent of him. Stephen, I guess that leads into a, a, an interesting thing that's not strictly beer-related, but one of the things that I've been critical about, um, particularly of late, as there's been a bit of bandwagon jumping onto the craft beer, the, as it's grown ex very expansively, very quickly, a lot of people have jumped into it. And a lot of the early promise of uh, craft beer that it was going to provide more of an experience than you know, uh, just a, a source of alcohol um, doesn't seem to have materialised. And... Uh, you know, I, I equate it, you walk into a lot of um, bars that style themselves as craft beer bars that are only craft beer bars because they have an uh, inordinately large range of beers, but they still present it um, often in the same glass that um, a, a mainstream lager would be presented in. And it's often uh, not terribly well presented. It uh, doesn't have a good collar of foam on top. Um, it's often you know, running down the side. There, there's... And yet you're charging a premium price for it, um, and none of the experience goes with it. And I equate that a little bit uh, like walking into a great steak restaurant. You can get a good steak just about anywhere, but if you're going to be charged, if you're going to be paying two and three times uh, for the steak, you don't want it just dumped in the middle of a uh, plain white plate with maybe some uh, French fries on the side. It needs to the experience needs to match the price tag. Um, do do you? How do you see the culture around beer um not just what's in the glass but you know the, the way that the beer is actually presented have you seen any changes well i you know matt i've been um i've been working as a consultant for restaurants as well for several years um as well as speaking at hospitality conferences and i see a genuine interest in um changing that culture from a lot of the chains who, you know, you go into their place and you get the shaker pint glass with no foam on top and other stuff. But there is, the, these places um, actually do have an interest in providing that sizzle along with the steak. Uh, so I, I see some change happening that way. Um, I was in a place last night, which was exactly what you described. You know, I ordered, uh, over the course of my time in there, I had two pints. Both were presented dreadfully. Um, didn't look like anything you even wanted to think about drinking, much less, you know, an attractive pint of beer. Um, and it, it's, it is disappointing when you get that, but it's, it, I, I guess my view is it's less disappointing than not being able to get that beer at all. Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of, I, 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 I agree um, that there is a certain demand for the aggressive flavors that craft beer brings, but a whole lot of other people... You know, it, they, they do drink with their eyes. They do sort of want more of an experience. So it, it needs to be marked out as being different. And particularly, you know, in Australia where two craft beers can easily cost you, uh, you know, $20, $22 um, because of the, 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 the excise arrangements. And if you're forking out, you know, over $20 for two beers, it can't be the same experience um, as you can get from a beer that's uh, poured by uh, one of the from, – from one of – the, the big brewers and uh yeah i i, I still worry that uh, unless the experience of drinking craft beer improves the longevity of the craft beer movement uh, could be fit, could be shortened well I, I i think that it is i mean at least on this side of the world um it is improving i think there is a distinct 
uh, desire to do that. But at the same time, you've got to remember that uh, your analogy, going back to your analogy of the steakhouse, um, there are a lot of steakhouses, but there are a lot more McDonald's. So the proper presentation, the proper uh, experience that you know goes with the glassware, goes with the pour, goes with everything, the presentation, um, is what I teach when I do consulting jobs. But it's, it's never going to be something that is ubiquitous because it is that kind of higher end aspect of it. Well, our, our, you know, just to change this topic just a, a bit, um, over here, I think one of the big issues that we're facing now, and it's even being addressed by the Association of Brewers, um, is, is a level of quality. Uh, there are, in my view, there are far too many beers that are being put out to market um, when they shouldn't be. They're, they're not at their ideal. They're under-conditioned, they're under-attenuated. Um, you know, you, you, try, you have a pint at a pub and it's got diastole in it. You don't know if that's the beer or the pub or the line or whatever, but that's, that does happen and it happens enough that it can't always be the pub. It's, it's sometimes the brewery has to bear the brunt of that, um, of that blame. Uh, and I think that QC is really an issue for the industry, at least on this side of the world. What, what, as somebody that consults to uh, industry, what, what do you see as some of the, the trends in terms of not so much beer style, but um, presentation or beer and food matching? Um, you know, what, what do you see the, the, the way forward as being? Well, there, there's certainly a lot of interest in beer and food matching and uh, very little skill in beer and food matching. That was one of the, one of the motivators for me in, in coming up with this new book I've cut coming out this fall. I think that there, there is the, the IPA as, as the absolute be-all and end-all in North America is uh, really starting to be a detriment to the, the, uh, the, the bar and restaurant market as a whole. Because you go into a place and the taps are dominated by IPAs, and it's like, well, you know, what if I just want a Kolsch or, or, or heaven forbid, a Pilsner? Um, and you know, you, you have to change, you have to go to a, a, a bottle to get that. Uh, so that that's a bit of an issue. It's it's certainly more of an issue in the United States than it is here in Canada. Uh, I hear of people talking about going into bars and and basically all they have on tap are IPAs because IPA is everything now. And if it's not a regular IPA, it's a black IPA or a session IPA or a pink IPA or a purple IPA. Or <laughs> I, I recall um, Stephen, a, a very uh, talented writer back in June last year who wrote um, about, was it, I think it was a, a non-secular high malt IPA that we <laughs> referred to as a, as a Trappist ale. Um, and the culture that you referred to, isn't that actually a, a, a cold condition hop low IPA? Uh, I, I think it was somewhat something along those lines. Yes, <laughs> that that one blog post continues to come back and haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to link uh, link that in the show notes because um, it's a it's a very uh, not cynical, it's, but it's it's fairly sort of I guess you know tongue in cheek and a little bit pointed um, reference to. And, and I guess look, we talk about Australia being perhaps a little bit behind um, the, the trends. Uh, in North America, but certainly at the moment, yeah, if you offered somebody uh, a Kolsch, you know, uh, the best, most well-produced, freshest, most beautiful Kolsch in the world, compared to a tired, 
uh, slightly oxidised, stale West Coast IPA, so many of the beer nerds would just go straight for the IPA. And, you know, it, it has ever been thus. I mean, in the early days, uh, I go back to when I started writing, it, it was less about um, the IPA style because, of course, it wasn't nearly so popular, but it was ales over lagers, always, you know, ales over lagers. And if, you've got to, if you're going to have a lager, for God's sakes, make sure it's dark. Amber at worst. But it, yeah. Amber at absolute, absolute worst. At the very minimum, yeah. Uh, so, you know, they, there's always been this um, this level of uh, geekery that, that demands certain elements. And uh, and I think that's, that's probably going to continue till the end of time. I mean, next up, we'll have, you know, who knows? Maybe I can't drink anything that's not barrel conditioned. You know, who knows? <laughs> Do, do you think that has the ability? We, we've seen um, over the last um, three or four months a slew of articles, uh, you know, at, at bagging either craft beer or the culture around it, the snobbishness that has has grown up. Um, do you harbour any fears that, uh, as with anything that can be distinctly faddish, when the fat ends, you lose all of the good as well as the bad? And you know, I. I Maybe it's not the best analogy, but I think back to the disco era where, you know, um, it, it threw up a whole lot of terrible fashions, but also some music that is, you know, that it, when you listen to it fairly has probably stood the, the test of time. But for a long time, anything that was disco was completely, uh, you know, uh, on the nose. and you, you couldn't like anything about that whole era. Um, and that meant that, you know, you, we, we lost a lot of good with the bad. Um, is, is that something that we risk seeing as, as craft beer becomes so identifiably um, fashionable um, that some of these styles, that we'll lose some of the great craft beer styles as well as some of the uh, slightly crazy ones? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by these um, stories that talk about the snobbery that surrounds craft beer because I spend probably entirely too much time in bars where craft beer is served, and I frankly don't see a lot of that. Um, so I, I'm wondering where these people who are complaining are are drinking that they're experiencing this all the time, and I think that perhaps you know more than 60 or 70 percent of this is well. Let's see what we can do to get a story that is really going to get people's um, hackles up and and get some readership over to it. I mean, we do live in the Internet age and, and nothing sells in the Internet age better than outrage. So I, I think there's, there's a certain degree of that that's going on here. Uh, but to get to your, your actual point, um, I think that, you know, we tend, uh, you and you and I uh, being people who are in, you know, immersed in this industry, we tend to get a little bit too myopic. And uh, we, we overlook the fact that there are you know, legions of people out there who are just discovering these beers. Uh, and, and they are um, kind of, I, I mean, I, I've got a nephew who's a classic case in point, and I take him out for a little bit of a pub crawl, and, and he's drinking things he's never even thought of before, much less you know, actually had the opportunity to drink it. So there is still an enormous amount of, of room for discovery that's out there. And I think brewers and brewery owners uh, understand that even when people who are getting a little too closely tied into the industry as observers 
kind of overlook that aspect of it. It, it. It's funny that you say that because one of the things that's flavoured my perception is that uh, a big part of what I do when I'm not writing is doing is hosting beer appreciation classes um, for people that aren't uh, immersed in craft beer already. So it's, it's going along to a uh, law firm and you know doing beer and food matching and. Uh, I, I always try and make the matches interesting so at the end of the night they, there's a bit of wow factor to it. Um, but I also make sure that it's, it's very inclusive um, and, and take along cultures. So they, they've got an idea of a light-flavoured beer that has a little bit more character than maybe the lagers that they drink, but it's still not going to you know, leave them unable to taste anything because of the hops um, for a couple of days. And a, a lot of the things that I'm hearing from them are, well, you know, that, that's really interesting but I don't know that I could drink a lot of it um, or drink it often or, you know, yeah, it was an experience, but not a pleasure. Um, and so, so that's left me thinking, well, yeah, there is always going to be a place for the um, uh, sharp end, the pointy end, the people that want to really take a lot further. But when you look at any industry, the, uh, the, the, the gravity of the industry is always going to be just in, you know, maybe one or two steps to the right as opposed to moving, you know, a, a, a quantum shift in, in terms of styles. Um, and it, to, to me, it's those people that can see that beer can have a little bit more flavour, but it's always just going to be beer for them. It's never going to be a lifestyle the way that uh, I think a whole lot of craft beer drinkers have made craft beer a lifestyle. And, and, and you know, I would add to that, it, it never should be. I mean, like, like anything that is premium, um, there, is, there is a segment that's going to embrace this totally, there's a segment that's going to dabble around in it from time to time, and there's a segment that's going to view it as just so much bollocks, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Mm. And that bottom segment is is always going to be the biggest. So they're they're going to be there, and you know we may come to the time, and I I would not bet against this, but we may come to the time that a uh, a craft brewed pale ale or a craft brewed um, lager becomes the de facto go-to style as opposed to the light lager and you know the the craft beer drinkers won't drink that stuff anymore but it'll be considered to be uh you know well you've got to go you've got to at least have an ipa if not a quadruple ipa because that's where the the real drinking is at so that that segmentation i think is always going to be there I, I, I guess that's the other benefit that you've got, Stephen. One of the reasons why I've always enjoyed your writing, um, not just because of the uh, slightly cynical take that Pete alluded to before, but you've also been writing for such a long time that you've seen trends come and go, um, and, and, and you've seen you know, smaller explosions uh, than the one that we've got now that I, I guess have also faded, um, and so you've got a healthy dose of not just cynicism, but, you know, experience to bring to what we're seeing now. And I, and I think the fact that, you know, from the day one, I knew that if I was going to do this, I had to get out and travel. And I think that that, that helps a lot as well. You know, and it, I've been around doing this for a long time, but I've also been all over the world seeing what everyone's doing. And, uh, and, and that definitely colors the World Atlas of Beer and the Pocket Beer Guide, because um, Tim does much the same thing. He he just got back from I think about a four or five country tour. Um, so we're we're trying to to stay on top of things. I've got a, a trip to China booked for later on this year, 
um, to kind of see exactly what's going on in China because things are starting to happen there. And I think that's a fascinating po possibility. Uh, so, uh, you know, that that's part of what um, I think has is, is really helped me to do my job as effectively as I can, which is just kind of getting out there and, and keeping going. You haven't been right around the world yet because we haven't got you uh, down to Australia um Yet, so that's obviously something that we will need to do. When the new book does come out, I, I think we might even uh, schedule another chat so we can talk a little bit more about uh, some of the things that you can't disclose to us yet about beer and food matching and uh, um, have a chat. But we'll also see if we can't you know, create a little bit of interest around getting you down, uh, down under um, to maybe do some uh, beer and food uh, tastings and some judging and, uh, and that sort of thing because it would be great to, uh, to get your take on, on what's happening down here. I would I would be very much up for that. I I've made it as far as New Zealand, but not all the way to to the Big Island. So, um, I hope to hope to remedy that in the not too distant future. Stephen, there are there are some in uh, in New Zealand who refer to us as the Western Isle, uh, the Western <laughs> Island of, of New Zealand, and there are some over here who refer to um, to New Zealand as as the Eighth State. I think probably the, uh, as a Canadian, uh, you probably hopefully appreciate this, but I think the best description of um, of Canada that I've heard, and I guess because it's it, 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 it's a bit of a touchstone for us, because I guess we see ourselves as very similar to Canadians in that we don't take ourselves all that seriously and we don't all carry guns. So in that way, we I guess we're, <laughs> we're, we're quite. Good. But um, but I, I heard Canada referred to as um, as like living in a beautiful um, apartment above a crack house. Yeah, yeah. There's something to that. I was gonna say we're, we we can be alike in that you know we we like to make don't take things too seriously and we don't carry guns, but we live right next to people who take themselves altogether too seriously and carry a lot of guns. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I know that you say that with a lot of love in your heart at the same time. I I I do. I really do enjoy going down to the United States. I do it quite a bit. Um, I've got another trip just coming up uh, in the next month or so. Um, actually, I'll be in Vegas at the end of this month, and you can't get much more American than that. Um, so, you know, it, it, I, I have a lot of great friends down there, and I do like it a lot. Um, I just sometimes, like everyone around the world, I see things on the news, and I just shake my head in bewilderment. Well, Stephen, anyone that wants to find out a little bit more about you, you blog at Blogging at World of Beer. Um, which is worldofbeer.wordpress.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. Where else can people uh, follow your thoughts and musings on the, the world of beer and uh, other drinks? Well, the best thing to do is uh, follow me on Twitter at Beaumont Drinks. Um, and you can also find me on Facebook. I, I'm very liberal about friending people, so if you send me a request, I'll, I'll pop you on and you can follow what's going on via Facebook. I'm actually setting up a new blog uh, and a whole website for later on this year. So I'll be shutting down uh, blogging at World of Beer uh, after a little while. But right now, there's still, I'd say, a post every two months or so. Terrific. Well, we'll link to all of those places and we'll certainly uh, keep our listeners up to date with uh, when the, the book comes out. But in the meantime, uh, the other books are the, the, the World Atlas of Beer um, and the Pocket Guide, the Pocket Beer Guide, um, both with Tim Webb, um, who's, uh, again, another... Uh, it actually would have been great to have both of you on at the same time um, because Tim's another uh, one of my favourite writers because of his healthy dose of cynicism as well. Well, we can probably orchestrate that at some point uh, because Tim and I are uh, have just started work on the um, the next edition of the World Atlas of Beer, so that will be coming out in 2016. 
uh, along with a new edition of the Pocket Beer Guide as well. So we're uh, we're combing the world and keeping on top of things and hoping to put that into a, a fully updated and expanded edition of the World Atlas. But for now, the the, the one in hardcover that you can find uh, on Amazon and on bookstore shelves, uh, we're both really proud of it. I think it's a great book. It's still relevant. It, it was published in 2012. I don't think it's changed dramatically since then. Uh, but certainly, uh, we're looking forward to a couple of years from now having the whole new edition out as well. Terrific. Well, Stephen Beaumont, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again one day very soon. But more importantly, having a beer with you one day very soon, we hope. I look forward to it. It's been a pleasure to chat. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. We'll have a barrel of fun. Roll out the barrel. There you go, Prof. Look, I love that chat. And, you know, as always, very um, free ranging. You know, we didn't have a particular agenda that we wanted to, to chat about. But uh, no, very interesting perspective from someone who's. In the uh, North American beer bubble, but not of the North American beer bubble, to uh, um, coin a phrase. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and, and, yeah, terrific bloke to, to chat with. Would love to have a, a, an actual beer. Yeah, mate, oh, maybe uh, quite apart from getting him down here, maybe uh, we can engineer an invite to uh, you know, North America and take the show on the road if we can get, <laughs> you know. Calling who, all sponsors, who knows? calling all sponsors. <laughs> Oh, or maybe, you know, the... Uh, passports yeah. are up to date and ready to go. Exactly. And now that you've got a passport. So, anyway, Prof, uh, mate, you've got a big weekend and next weekend. We didn't touch on it at the start of the show, but you are... Yeah, myself um, and Kiralee, we're off to host the Bendigo uh, Craft Beer Insider Festival, 28th of March. You can still get tickets, uh, and they're a little bit cheaper if you buy them online before the event, but rock up on the day. Um, plenty of brewers, plenty of fun, lots of food. A uh, few surprises that Kirill and I have got up our sleeves for the punters there on the day to make uh, make things a little bit more interesting. We don't have a like an education area as such, but we're um, you know we're we're planning on doing some little seminars in between bands and having a bit of fun. And speaking of beer festivals, Prof, we probably shouldn't uh, neglect to mention that next Wednesday, um, the 25th of March, um, I think that's Wednesday, um, but certainly the 25th of March, tickets for Australia's uh, greatest beer and food festival, the Great Australasian Beer Spectacular, or GABS, go on sale. Very excited. Had a, had a meeting the other day about that, because there's a few few changes. Those who, uh, you know, my loyal following from uh, Craft Beer College, uh, the local tap house is our new sponsor for, uh, for Craft Beer College, and we're also incorporating a separate um, craft beer college type uh, area on the other side of the upper level that um, good friend of the program, the beer diva, Kiralee Walthorn, will be um, facilitating doing the sort of uh, adventures in beer for want of a better working title at the moment. So some more, you know, um, the, the more interesting, funky theatre style uh, as well as uh, celebrity chefs cooking with beer and that sort of stuff as well. 
There's only the uh, beer diva can. Exactly. So, well, that, that's, that's very exciting. We will also be doing a uh, live uh, Bruin transfer um, from the uh, from from the floor on the from last Crafty session College, yeah. Saturday night. Last Crafty session Saturday night. night. And uh, yeah, look, I'd, mate, you and I are involved in a lot of beer festivals that we have. You know, um, we, we get paid to sort of present at. But I still think that it's fair to say that Gabs is the you know, is the beer festival premium, in Australia. Premium. Numero uno, without peer, yeah. Just in terms of with have, but yeah, they're all good, but you can still have uh, something that's a, a little bit better. So jump online, uh, look for the program, look for tickets, and uh, make sure you get along. Um, it's part of Good Beer Week in Melbourne, um, so start booking your flights if you're listening outside of Melbourne, and we know a lot of you are. So anyway, Profits, as always, great to chat to you, great show. Um, thanks for joining me to uh, chat with Stephen Beaumont, and uh, talk to you very, very soon. Cheers, Matt, and uh, cheers, listeners. Take care. Actually, mate, but before we do, we, now we are hopeless. Um, we thank Cryomolt. We're with sponsors, yeah, so we do need to... Insert ad here. <laughs> and, uh, yes, so uh, no, thank you very much to Cryomolt and Brewpack that make um, what we do possible and also are very, very patient with, with us forgetting to talk about them in the show. But, Pete, always good to chat. Um, we can find you at... Professor Pilsner or Prof Pilsner on Twitter. Uh, beer blokes and beer blokes. Yeah. I always get yeah, yeah. beer blokes on Twitter. Um, and Pete Mitchum and on Facebook. Pete Mitchum on Facebook, Little and you can follow Osbrews News uh, on Facebook and Twitter, and also Good Beer Matt. Um, until next time, Prof. Strike up the band, hey. That's it. Mm-hmm.